Hello everyone, my name is Morten Zeyer. I'm here today with Samet Rashid, who used to be the Strategy and Special Projects Manager at the Office of National Drug Control Policy at the White House in Washington, D.C. Uh, he is now working on strategy and growth at Pando, but we're not here to speak about his current job, but we're going to speak about his past job at uh, the White House uh, office. So, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you, Morton, and thank you to the SolveCast team for having me on today. So yeah, as Morton said, I used to work at the White House's Office of National Drug Control Policy. Some people may have heard of the drug czar, the term drug czar. And if you have, then you've heard of the person who was my supervisor. So we are an agency that was established in the 80s to address substance use issues in this country. Most recently, just given the trends that we're seeing, we've been working on the opioid epidemic in this country, which kills approximately 70,000 people every year. And the Office of National Drug Control Policy works both on law enforcement and what we call supply side issues. So re reducing the um, supply of drugs by working with international partners, doing border controls, border control stuff, working with domestic law enforcement, but then also public health measures, what we call demand reduction. And so I worked on more of the public health side, developing, helping develop the kind of national strategy to address substance use in this country from a kind of a public health standpoint, and then implementing that strategy across the entire government. Yeah, I was there for about two years and had an amazing time. I feel like this is one of those issues that transcends politics for many people, including myself. It's, it's very personal. Addiction is something that I think a lot of us have seen in our families or in our friends, unfortunately. And I'm just, yeah, happy to talk about, happy to talk about my experience. Yeah, thank you so much. Obviously, the topic of the opioid epidemic has somewhat taken a back seat now with the global pandemic of the coronavirus. But could you give us a little more information? You already mentioned that 70,000 people have died uh, during this epidemic. Could you give us a little more information background of what has happened in the past and what the trends are of the opioid epidemic? Yeah, for sure. This is a this is a huge question. And I would urge and everyone who's interested in this, there's an amazing book out there called Dreamland which is the authority, like authoritative source on how we got here. Just an amazing piece of journalism. So if you're interested in a very good read, I would urge you to check that out. That being said, this, like the opioid epidemic came in, it came in three waves. I mean, we're in the midst of a, a third wave right now. The first wave is, I think, what a lot of people are familiar with, which is the overprescribing of uh, prescription painkillers like Oxycontin, And the other ones are escaping my mind right now, but like OxyContin is, I think, kind of the biggest one. Mm -hmm. And it was, there's a lot of complicated factors that led to it. But I think that ultimately what happened was that many of the guardrails that we put up in order to make sure that prescriptions are adequately, prescription drugs are adequately prescribed, many of those guardrails failed. And as a result, we ended up having a lot of people being put on these highly addictive drugs when they shouldn't have, or being prescribed in rates that they shouldn't have. The second wave was that people, many individuals stopped going after prescription painkillers and started using um, heroin. And so what we saw was, because heroin is a cheaper substance, and what we saw was that a lot of people ended up switching from prescription painkillers to heroin, and heroin became much more plentiful um, and much more easily available mm -hmm. um, and popular in this country. And the third wave in what we're in right now is the emergence of a highly potent painkiller called fentanyl, 
Um, fentanyl is something that's often used by paramedics or used by anesthesiologists for painkiller purposes, but it's an extraordinarily potent drug that can be mixed in with a whole bunch of other drugs. And as a result, a lot of people are overdose um, on it. With the COVID-19 public health um, emergency, the pandemic has, it, it's interacted with the epidemic in some very interesting ways. We had seen early signs that we were beginning to make some progress in a lot of the work that we do before COVID, and COVID's kind of significantly complicated the experience in a number of different ways. As we've seen, a lot of people have lost their jobs due to the epidemic, and in this country, a lot of people get their um, their health insurance through their jobs. So all of a sudden, they don't have access to treatment life-saving treatment or mental health, mental health treatment, or access to like different recovery support services that are necessary to help sustain long-term recovery. We've also seen a lot of research that talks about the effects of joblessness on deaths of despair, which includes overdoses, suicides, and kind of alcohol misuse. In short, places that experience high level of joblessness are also places that experience, subsequently experience high levels of de- deaths of despair. And so with a lot of people out of work, that will pro- unfortunately translate into, likely translate into more deaths of despair. Ongoing social distancing measures makes it difficult for people to get treatment, for example, are like shifting their focus out towards COVID. And so you have a lot of people who just, for many different reasons, aren't able to access either treatment or long-term recovery uh, support services, Alcoholics Anonymous or what have you. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that we're seeing a lot of folks, there's kind of been, COVID's taken a lot of resources and as a result, there's not as much care available for many people who might have, for example, experienced an overdose. I volunteer as an EMT in, out in Virginia and anytime that we get a call to deal with someone who might be experiencing COVID symptoms, that puts us out of service for someone who could be experiencing an overdose. So yeah. it's a question of resource allocation. Social isolation is very it's highly predictive of loneliness, which is highly predictive of mental health issues, mm-hmm. which is highly predictive of then, for many people, deaths of despair. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I'll say is that we've seen that the COVID-19 epidemic ha- or pandemic has especially affected the, some of the most vulnerable populations. Mm-hmm. So homeless populations and criminal justice populations, especially. Mm-hmm. And these are also populations that are more predisposed to deal with substance use issues. To answer your question in short, the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated a lot of the underlying conditions of the opioid epidemic. Very interesting. Are there ways, innovative ways to get around this somehow? I don't know if an anonymous alcoholics meeting in over Zoom will work as well as in person. What are the ways? Are there any innovations out there that you've seen that actually help people at least somewhat circumvent the issues that come with the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, so I think that what you talked about is one of the innovations that we're seeing. Just as workplaces have shifted to more virtual, a more virtual setup, what we've seen is like telehealth has started taking off in ways that it hadn't um, before. The government has relaxed a lot of laws that prevent prescrip- prescribers from fully using telehealth to, for example, prescribe um, medicine. So like actions like that have helped increase access to treatment for a lot of folks. Same thing with virtual recovery support services. So what we've seen right now is a lot is that a lot of these re- recovery groups have turned to Zoom and Skype and what have you to help hold you know some of the sessions. And it may not be as effective as the in person. It's still significantly better than not having anything at all. So I think that a lot of those have been extraordinarily beneficial. But I think that we are still. Frankly, like it's still very early for us to see exactly how this epidemic 
I'm sorry, this pandemic has exacerbated the epidemic. Like when I was at the task force, you're kind of, you know, learning from people on the ground and finding new and, you know, like, and just like we kept on discovering new ways that, you know, the situation on the ground had changed. So even with innovations, we're still, I think, it's still too early to have a list of best practices or slam dunk innovations. Yeah, no, very interesting. You work at the federal government, but do you have any insights on what regional governments or even city governments can do to um, mitigate the issues there? Yeah, I, it's something, it's not something that, I guess what I'm saying is I wouldn't necessarily have an answer that um, I'm sure a mayor or councilman, councilman, councilwoman wouldn't have. But, but I think a lot of it is understanding how do we ensure that people have access to the treatment that they need, and whether that includes issuing emergency funding for, you know, for hospitals or healthcare centers, many of which are counterintuitive, counterintuitively not doing that well financially during the COVID epidem- uh, pandemic. But that's something that's super important. I think that there's also a conversation about making sure that first responders are, and other kind of frontline workers are adequately staffed. As I said, I've worked as an EMT out in, out in Virginia, and we've had some firefighters and some pan- paramedics who, who become sick. So making sure that workforce is ready and that work- workforce is fully staffed is, I think, super important, obviously. But, I th- but one of the biggest ones, I think, is understanding that um, addiction doesn't exist in a vacuum. It definitely exists in a broader context. And I think a lot of the work that there's been a lot of research on how Things like joblessness affect people's psyche or loneliness affect people's psyche in a way that makes them more predisposed to turn to drugs. And I think that a lot of kind of regional and city level governments are very strongly, very well positioned to begin looking at things like loneliness and to begin looking at things like joblessness. And how do we make sure that we don't let people kind of slide during this really difficult time? You obviously won't have the silver bullet, but how can we overcome this epidemic? Is there a, a best practice or a way that we can we can follow to make sure it gets better? Yeah, so I, I get this question asked um, a lot. I think that it is an all of the above solution for like everyday individuals. I think that there's you know even if you don't work in you know healthcare or work in government, I think that there's ways that you can still contribute to mm-hmm. just just do your part. I would say. So the first is, I think, just learning about it. I mentioned the book Dreamland, which I think is just an incredible, once again, an incredible book. But I think that does a really good job of kind of setting the context and setting the stage of how we ended up with an epidemic in this country. Mm-hmm. And I think what it also does is make the point that addiction is a mental illness. I think for the longest time, we treated it like a personal failing, but it's important to really understand and to fully appreciate that, that shift. Because then, and that gets me to my next point, which is understanding the role that stigma can play, personal stigma, institutional stigma, in preventing people from getting treatment and then maintaining their recovery. I think being knowledgeable about the kind of larger context that gave rise to addiction can help undermine the belief that some people might have that this is a personal failing. Also, being aware of your language. There's been a significant amount of research that using certain words over others may make may predispose or make it more difficult for, let's say, policymakers to pass legislation that deals with this or makes it more difficult for doctors and other healthcare providers to treat um, those with addiction. Just as like a small example, we never say the word addict because it's a very stigmatizing term. But yeah. what we found to be less stigmatizing is the term person with substance use disorder. 
at a high level, the reason being is because when you say addict, you're defining someone by this one behavior. When you say some person with substance use disorder, you're recognizing that they're a person and this happens to be just one unfortunate part of their larger experience. And the third thing I'd say is that get CPA, you know, frankly, get CPR training. We, uh, a lot of people talk about naloxone, which is this kind of miracle drug that can revive someone who's having an opioid addiction. You don't even, but you don't need to have this drug in order to pay, in order to save a life. Someone who is, someone who's overdosed can be revived with chest compressions and rescue breaths. And I just generally encourage everyone to get CPR training. It takes two days. The dividends that it pays can be incredible. So Matt, this has been incredibly insightful and really interesting. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to join us today. We hope to welcome you uh, potentially in your new role in the future. And again, thank you so much. Thank you.